listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Well, like Justin likes to say every week, we here at Citizens Church uh, are a part of community, and we are cultivating a diverse community of disciples that belong to Jesus and seek the good of Birmingham. And what we're going to talk about tonight when we talk about prayer is one of those ways that we're really cultivating, taking that slow, steady growth. So this is our last sermon from our series on the book of James, and we've titled this series, Faith That Works. But before we get to our passage tonight on prayer, I do want us to take a moment and kind of look back over the book of James so that we can tie together what we've learned and have a better grasp of what we're going to explore tonight. And I owe a great debt of gratitude, I outright stole this, uh, from Dr. Dan Doriani, uh, who explained the structure and the themes of the book of James uh, on his episode of the podcast uh, called Help Me Teach the Bible. Uh, I can't recommend that enough. So if you want more about James, please go listen to that episode. So as Dr. Doriani points out, like a great many of the books in the New Testament, many of the themes in James are laid out for us in the first chapter. And in James chapter one, James gives us three tests that we can give ourselves to see whether or not we've actually received new birth. And before I read these tests, for those of you who might be geared up, sharpening your pencil, uh, I need to point this out to you. You're going to fail these tests. All of us are going to fail these tests. And James knows that we're going to fail these tests. Like every good gospel preacher, James wants to give you the bad news up front and prepare your heart to receive the good news. So the three tests are laid out for us in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. They'll be up here on the screen for you. James writes, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here are your three tests. Control your tongue. Love the least among you. And keep yourself unstained from the world. And what James does in chapters 2, 3, and 4 is demonstrate for us how every single one of us fail all of these tests over and over again. So for example, in James chapter 2, in verses 6 and 7, James demonstrates our failure to love the least among us. James says in chapter 2, You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So we're 0 for 1. Chapter 3, James shows we all fail to control our tongue. Again, it'll be up on the screen. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. So we're 0 for 2. How about number 3? Can we go 1 for 3? It's a pretty good batting average in baseball. Can we go 1 for 3? Well, bad news. Chapter 4. James writes this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Oh, for three. All of us. Me, you, your grandmother, John Piper, all of us. We're oh, for three. James has done exactly what he said he was going to do all the way back in chapter one. He held up the mirror of the word to our hearts. And what we see, what all of us see, is not pretty. If that's what you're feeling right now, if all of your failures from the past week, or maybe your failures of the past hour, are rushing back over you, good. James has you right where he wants you. Because there are three tests that we all fail. But then James in chapter 4 gives us the response that God desires. Right after James demonstrates that none of us passed the test, We're given the gospel according to James in verses 6 and 10 of chapter 4. Here's what James says after showing us that our hearts are at war with God. He says this, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is good news, brothers and sisters. This is good news, and this is the response that God desires. James does not say, you have all failed, now go to your room, study, try harder the next time, and you better pass next time. No, James says, you failed. Now throw yourselves at the feet of the God who desires, is eager, eagerly waiting to draw near to you. The one who can't wait to be gracious to you. The one who says, if you will humble yourselves, I will exalt you. And the rest of the letter, from that moment, it turns. And we then see James work out for us what it would mean for Christians to walk in humility in all areas of our life. It would mean acknowledging that you don't have the right to judge your brothers and sisters. It would mean acknowledging that you are not in control of your life, not even the next hour. It would mean that you are not to place your trust in the material possessions that you earn yourself but your security is found in the Lord who is given to you as a gracious gift. And it means acknowledging the right to let God be God and mete out justice when he knows it's best and relinquish your right over your life. And finally, our passage tonight is going to teach us that God's people can humble themselves by praying prayers of petition, celebration, and confession with and for one another. So you can follow along as you're out in your outline as we go. We're going to be looking at how we can humble ourselves in prayer. So the first way that we humble ourselves in prayer is by praying when we're suffering. So look again at the first part of verse 13. James says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now by not giving us a specific set of parameters as to what qualifies suffering, as if to say, if you're suffering with sickness or if you're suffering from persecution, then you pray. No, James just says, if you're suffering. And by doing this, James is throwing open the door for every single one of us, every single one of God's people who are going through any type of suffering that this fallen world contains to come to him in prayer. Remember, James said that we should count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, all kinds, any kinds. So we don't just count it joy, we also are to pray. So whether your suffering tonight is physical, emotional, financial, relational, 
Whatever it is, we are being invited to bring our burdens to the Lord. And by inviting us to pray when we're suffering, James is telling all of us that our first instinct, which for most of us in this room, is try and solve your own problems yourself, is actually the exact opposite of what God wants for us. Many of us in the room are parents, and we may long for the day when our children don't need us for literally everything. Everything. But our Heavenly Father does not think that way. He actually wants us to remain in a childlike state of dependence that Jesus mentions so often. Now, interestingly enough, James is not the only follower of Jesus, the only apostle to link together prayer, humility, and suffering. We're going to have a verse up here from 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 8. Peter writes this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now in this passage from 1 Peter, we're given a command. Humble ourselves. And to help out, to motivate us, we're given a reason. Why should I humble myself? So that God can exalt us. He can do a far better job, my friends, of exalting you than you can. And we're even given a way in which we can obey that command, like humble ourselves. What does that even mean? Peter says, let me tell you what that means. You humble yourself by casting your cares on the Lord. You humble yourself by saying, I need help. I can't fix what's broken in me out there. I can't do it. I need help. So far, so good. Then Peter seems to take a really weird turn in this passage. He tells us to be sober-minded and watchful because the devil is after us. What's the connection here between our prayers, God's care, and the need to keep a watch for the devil? And I think it's because one of the devil's main goals, after we've given our life to Christ, he didn't want that to happen. Once that happens, the devil's main goal in your life is to keep you from enjoying the peace that God intends for all of his children to do. Now, does the devil have some wicked global master plan with moving chess pieces around the board, trying to stop God's plan for the universe? Yeah. And you want to know what number one on that list is? Keep you from praying. That is number one on his list. What Peter is telling us is to be watchful for a spirit, a tendency, not just from the devil out there, but from our own flesh in here, to think to ourselves, you know, I've asked God about this thing 30 times this week. I think I got this one myself. Or even worse, be watchful for the tendency to say, you know, I've asked God about this like 30 times this week. I bet he's sick and tired of me. Hear the word of the Lord. Cast your cares on him. He cares for you. He cares for you on the first request. He cares for you on the thousandth request. He cares for you. So you humble yourself and you ask for him to do what only he can do. And as you do this, stay on guard for the voice of the devil. Yes, he is a roaring lion. He wants to strike fear into your heart to drive you away from God. He wants you to think that that's the Lord yelling at you. It's not, it's him. To drive you away in fear. But he is also a subtle serpent. And he wants to cunningly lead you away from prayer 
through your own pride, thinking, I don't need God for this. I got this one. And Peter and James and the entire voice of Scripture would say, when that voice comes, you run to the Lord, and he will drive the enemy away, and he will do what only he can do. So we humble ourselves in prayer when we're suffering. We also humble ourselves in prayer and pray when we're celebrating. So look at the second half of verse 13. James asks this question, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, we might look at that statement and we might struggle to see where prayer comes in. And if that's the case, may I suggest to all of us that perhaps we've got far too constrained a vision for what prayer is. Yes, prayer often, perhaps even most often for us, is going to take the form of closing our eyes and praying silently to ourselves alone in a room. But we should not be so eager to draw lines and say, this is prayer, but that is not. This is prayer, and that's singing, and never the two shall meet. No, by inviting us to sing praise when things are good, James is inviting us to remember. Remember that every good thing that you have in your life is from the Lord. As James wrote in chapter 1 of this very letter, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything you have is from the Lord. So if there's anything in your life that makes you smile, if there's anything in your life that's worth singing about, you got it from God. Humble yourselves by acknowledging that fact. You did not earn that fill-in-the-blank by the sweat of your brow. You received that fill-in-the-blank from your gracious Heavenly Father. And when we sing songs of praise, we are humbly acknowledging he gives, we receive. Now here's where the Psalms come in really handy because the Psalms were written by God to give God's people a songbook to sing in almost every conceivable scenario. They're written to be sung by us together. And here's one of my favorites. It's Psalm 145, 5 through 7. I'm not going to sing it. If you want to hum a tune, feel free. But the psalmist writes this, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. But they, the rest of the community, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And then later on in that very same chapter, the verse 15 and 16, the psalmist writes, The eyes of all look to you, God, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. So when we get that promotion at work, when we come into a little bit of money, when things start to go well, the world says, man, you need to celebrate on social media, call all your friends and go out for drinks or dance down the street like a character in a Disney movie, right? And none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but let's remember to always look past the gift, to acknowledge the giver, to orient our hearts rightly towards him by acknowledging that what we have is a gift that we don't deserve. And we are so very grateful for it. We humble ourselves in praise. Now, in a couple of weeks, the Christmas season will be full on upon us. And one of the passages of scripture that you're going to hear over and over again is in the Gospel of Luke when Elizabeth who she and her husband Zechariah had been barren for many years and unable to have children, she became pregnant. And do you know what she did? She stayed in her house. She prayed. She thanked God. 
for this gift of a baby before she told anybody else. Let that be a good reminder for us of what the heart that James is after. So we humble ourselves by praying when we're suffering. We humble ourselves by praying when we're celebrating. And here's a third way. James is inviting inviting us to humble ourselves by praying when we're hurting. Now, verses 14 and 15 say this. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, our first invitation to pray was for any and all suffering in general. But here, James is giving us a particular situation that calls for prayer and giving us a particular set of instructions. So when we are sick, James says, one, you call for the elders of the church, which is to say your church. And here we must acknowledge, and what a great time to be talking about this, that this is one of the key functions that goes with the role of elders. So Justin and John here in the room and Clay serving us back in the nursery This is one of the ministries that the Lord has called you to. You are to go and pray for the sick. But what that requires, guys, is for us to open our doors and invite them in, let them in, and call for prayer. And if I may say this, this is yet another way, another subtle way, the New Testament points all of us towards meaningful membership in the local church. It's not just any elder of any church. It's your elder at your church. You don't have a church, you don't have an elder. And if you don't have an elder, you do not have access to the full menu of prayer coverage, prayer support that the Lord wants you to enjoy. And so that's you tonight, not in all the way on citizens or all the way on any church. I would just encourage you, please talk to John, Clay, Justin, any one of us here about getting more info or joining citizens. We would love to have you. We would love to pray for you. So we're to call the elders. They're to pray over you. And it says, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, as soon as I say anointing with oil, our minds might be running all sorts of places. And let's kind of bring it back. What does scripture say about anointing? Well, in the Old Testament, people are obviously anointed all throughout the scriptures. They're anointed to be a prophet, anointed to be a priest, they're anointed to be king. But what we may not know is that objects were also anointed. For example, in Exodus 30, 26, when God is giving instructions to Moses about the building of the tabernacle, God tells Moses to take the anointing oil, and it says in verse 26, with it, the anointing oil, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony. So an object is being anointed, because to anoint something or to anoint someone is to set that thing, that person, aside for the Lord's special use. And God's special purpose is the same in every case, to bring him glory. So when the Lord says through James, anoint them with oil, he is saying we are to ask God to display his glory in this person right now through doing something that only God can do. You're saying this person belongs to the Lord. But let's not be distracted by the talk of oil and miss the main point. All of the anointing and all of the praying is done in the name of the Lord. When James says Lord, he means Jesus. It's Jesus' power that we're asking to see exercised. It's Jesus' glory that we want to see displayed. It's his victory that we want to see manifested. And it's his sacrifice that we're asking to be rewarded. Isaiah, writing 700 years before the birth of Christ, said that of the suffering servant, of Jesus Christ, with his wounds, we are healed. 
It's Jesus' wounds that have purchased our healing. So verse 14 gives us actions we're to take. We call for the elders, we let them anoint, and we pray over us. And verse 15 gives us the result. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And that's another phrase that we may read and start to wonder, what does this mean, this prayer of faith? One of my favorite stories from the Gospels happens right after the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. So Jesus, after just having his glory displayed on earth, this amazing story, he comes down from the mountain and he finds a crowd waiting for him. A father pushes his way to the front of the crowd. He throws himself at the feet of Jesus and he begs Jesus to cast a demon out of his son. And the father says, if you can. Here's how the rest of the story goes. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now ask yourself right here, what do you think Jesus is going to say to him? Mm, Try again later when you got a little more faith, buddy. I mean, you've seen all that I've done. You've seen me walk on water. You've seen me feed. You don't think I could feed you, cast this demon out of your son? Go get yourself together and come back and try again. No. He heals the boy. He answers this father's prayer. He helped his unbelief. Our ultimate hope is not in the strength of our faith, but in the strength of the one in whom we have faith. The prayer of faith is a prayer that's clinging, even if by our fingernails, to the all-sufficient power and perfect timing of our God. So we've gotten sick, and the elders have prayed in the name of Jesus for our healing, And according to James, what happens next? It says in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, if you're anything like me, you worry way too much about saving God from embarrassment. You're terrified that one of your non-Christian friends is going to read this verse and is going to start like making fun of you. And so you start hemming and hawing and throwing up all these caveats and exceptions. Well, what James means by that is, and well, you know that old me, all boy, right? God does not need you or me to bail him out. He wrote what he wrote. Are there other verses in the Bible that teach us that God doesn't always answer yes when we ask him to heal someone? Absolutely. You don't think Mary and Martha prayed for however many days when Lazarus was sick? But ask yourself this. We said that one of the roles for Justin, for John, and for Clay is that they're to come and pray over you. And if you were sick and you were dying, what verses do you want them to be thinking about while they're praying over you? I think you know the answer. We know that Christians are going to get sick, and we know that Christians are going to die. But when we pray for their healing, we are being invited. We're being commanded by James to pray boldly and with great expectation that God is going to answer our prayers for healing. Now, yes, let's be clear. That raise him up at the end ultimately is going to refer to every single follower of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, yes, we will all be raised up with him. Praise God. But that is not what James is talking about. When he says raise him up, he means raise him up off of his deathbed. We are to pray like that. The elders of our church are to pray like that full confidence that God is able to heal, while also remembering that even if he doesn't, he is still good. Now, I'm going to say staring right at you, because I will weep if I turn around and look at what's about to come up here. Uh, When Grace and I got called 
uh, on May 13th, 2019, and we were told the amazing news that we had been placed with twin boys, and we were about to be parents of twins. We were also told that our son, Manny, was in the hospital. Uh, and they told us at first that it was serious, but we didn't understand how serious. But over the next few hours, we learned more about his condition and about how serious it was. About six hours after getting that first call, we finally arrived at the hospital to see Manny. And uh, we were told that it was 50-50 over the next 48 hours. 50-50 uh, chance that Manny would die in the next 48 hours. And they told us that even if he did live for the next 48 hours, he was going to be in the NICU for weeks and weeks. He was going to be in the hospital for months and months. And they told us that he would be on what's called an ECMO pump uh, for several weeks. And up on the screen, you'll see what he looked like on the night that we met him. And this is the part that really sticks in my mind. Uh, the doctor said to us, now telling these terrified parents, he said, I need you to hear me. People don't get better on ECMO. The goal of ECMO is to stabilize. That's all we're trying to do. He's not going to get better, so don't, don't get your hopes up. We're just going to stabilize him, and we're going to see where it goes. So Grace and I began to text every single person that we knew, uh, and we asked them for prayer. But we also asked our pastor and one of our best friends, who was an elder at our church, to come and pray for him. We were also able to get a picture of that, and it'll be up here on the screen. And I will never forget that moment. And what I'll even more never forget is the next day, after Matt and Jared prayed, the doctor told me, you know, I never tell people this, but he's getting better. And the day after that, he came off the ECMO pump. And here's a picture of what he looked like then. They told us months and months in the hospital, he came home in 15 days. 15 days. And if you've seen him, he hasn't said he's not stopped moving yet. I think those 15 days of being constrained, he's just working all that out still. Maybe he'll run out one day. But the point is, guys, our God is a truly awesome God. And so we ask him to do the things that only he can do. We ask him to heal and work miracles. So we humble ourselves and we pray when we're suffering. We humble ourselves, we pray when we're celebrating. We humble ourselves and we pray when we're hurting. The fourth way that we humble ourselves is by praying when we're guilty. Verse 15 and 16 says, And if he, the brother, has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, we live in a world full of suffering and a world full of sin, but we know that Scripture teaches that our sickness is not always, maybe even not often, tied to our sin, but sometimes, guys, it is. And we know that Job's suffering was not because of his sin. Job was a righteous man. But it seems, if you'll think back to our series in John, when Jesus healed the paralyzed man, and said, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, it seems as if his condition was tied to his sin. Jeremiah the prophet suffered immensely for 40 years because of his faithfulness. But there were Christians in the church at Corinth who were getting sick and dying, Paul said, because of their sin in the Lord's Supper. Whether our sickness is directly tied to our sin or not, in moments of sickness, moments of lying on a bed, feeling miserable, we're, beginning, we're being given an opportunity which we in our fast-paced culture need, maybe more than ever, and that's to slow down and ask the Lord to show us, examine our hearts. We are encouraged to ask God to examine our hearts multiple times in Scripture and say to the Lord, is there any sin that has taken root in my heart? Is there anything that's growing in there? It may not have manifested yet, but the Lord sees it. 
And he's given you an opportunity to deal with it. Now, whether we become aware of our sin while we're in our sickbed, or whether we're the picture of health running a marathon, the response James calls for is the same. Confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And this may be, I think for all of us, the most humbling command of all. Most of us in this room have spent a great deal of time and energy building up an image of ourselves in the eyes of our friends. And if we confess that sin, that struggle, we are afraid that it's going to shatter that image. And may I humbly say to you and to myself, good, destroy that image, shatter it. Idols always disappoint you. Idols always destroy you. And if it takes confessing sin to destroy the idol that you have built up of yourself, that is the Lord's mercy. Now, we hear citizens talk a good deal about community groups. And this act of confessing is one of the greatest reasons to join a community group. Not too late. Talk to Tyler Chapman. We need people. I need people who have committed to us so that we can share our struggles with people that we are pretty confident are not going to just run for the door. We need to have people that we can confess our sins, who we know are not just going to run for the door or pat us on the back. They're going to pray for us. They're going to battle alongside of us. Remember, an isolated sheep is a vulnerable sheep. We do have an enemy who is a roaring lion. We do have an enemy who is eager to devour us. And so we, yes, we need the guidance of Jesus, our shepherd, but we also need encouragement from our fellow sheep. Now, after giving us all of these times that we should pray, James 5, 16 and 18 gives us reasons that our prayers for healing from sickness or deliverance from sin should give us hope. He says this, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James says the reason that we should ask for prayer, whether we're sick or whether we're caught in sin, is is because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and God can work miracles through it. For example, James says, think of Elijah. He's a man like us, made in God's image, like you, like me, with struggles like us. And through his prayers, God did not allow a drop of rain for three and a half years. And then through his prayers, rain came. Now, you might read that and think, I don't know, Andy, Elijah's one of the heroes of the faith. You mentioned the Mount of Transfiguration. Wasn't Elijah up there with Jesus? I'm far from a hero. I don't know if I, don't know if I qualify if it's a prayer of a righteous person. Yes, Elijah is a hero of faith, and we should look to him as an example. But he's also a man who sinned. He's a man who doubted God, a man who ran from God's mission, a man who wished for death in the midst of discouragement. And despite all of that, his prayers were mighty because his faith was in Yahweh. And so his prayers were effective. He was the same sinner as every single one of us. He was saved by faith in the same God as every single one of us. So we give and receive prayer based on God's character and power, not on your own. If you are a Christian, then you have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so guess what? You are a righteous person. You count. Your prayers have great power as they work. Now, James ends his book in a unique way. There's no words of farewell or names of specific people to greet. 
Instead, James tells us that we are to pursue when they're wandering. James says this in verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The Christian life is difficult. And like the song says, every single one of us is prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. And so James says that if we, if I, if you see a brother or sister wandering off, we are to pursue them in love and bring them back to Jesus. Now, my wife Grace and I have very similar testimonies. We were both raised by godly parents. We both made a confession of faith early in elementary school, and we both acted like complete and utter fools in high school and college. We both began living for Jesus when we were in our mid-twenties. The difference is this. Grace would give testimony that she was always a believer, but she just wasn't living like one until the Lord brought her back. For me, I don't think that I was a Christian until my mid-twenties. But when we're pursuing one another, it doesn't really matter if you're pursuing a Grace or an Andy. Only God knows which one you're pursuing. You don't have to ask yourself, was this person a Christian? Is they not no, what you're doing is you are praying and pursuing and bringing them back to Jesus. Because it's not the pursuer who is going to save their soul from death. It's not the pursuer who can cover their sins. No, it is Christ who saves our soul from death. It is Christ who covers our sins with his death. It is our job to pursue and to call people to live under the lordship of Christ. Whether it's a return to that state, in Grace's case, or it's the first time actually bowing the knee, like in my case. Our job is to pursue them all. It is the Lord's job to keep track of who's who. Guys, as we've studied this passage tonight, as we've looked at the entire book of James over the last few months, we've all come, I hope, I'm sure, we've all come face to face with a lot of failures. James will do that to you. And we have failed to humble ourselves. And therefore, we have failed to treat others with kindness, We have failed to control our tongues. We have failed in pursuing holiness. And as James told us in chapter 1, we have two options at this point. We as a church have two options at this point. Option 1, we can hate what we see in the mirror. And we can just walk away and pretend we didn't see it. That's an option on the table. But that way leads to death. Option number 2, We can be broken over what we can see. It's ugly what we see. It's painful what we see. But James would say, humble yourself. Cry out for grace. He gives more grace. And that way of humbling and crying out leads to life and exaltation. The life comes to you, not because you're finally going to get it right. The life comes because Jesus, our Savior, though he always got it right, was humiliated on the cross for us. He took the place of a slave. So we are now welcomed as a son. Life and exaltation come not after finally checking off all of these on your to-do list, but by bowing the knee before Jesus. He gives life. He will raise you up. So friends, if you're here exploring Christianity tonight, we are so happy that you are here. And I hope that we would confess and I hope that we would display with our lives that we are not a people who think that we have it all together. We are a people who worship the one who truly holds it all together. The one who delights in being gracious to those
who will humble themselves and worship him. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.